podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. Raising your 1980s kids right with Paul Sun Young Lee. Welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. My name is Will, and joining me as always are my friends and my co-hosts, Ray and Kat. Hello. What's going on, everybody? How are your vacations? Did you have a pleasant time off? (laughs) I'm still waiting for my vacation. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm sick of drinks with umbrellas. Let's get back to beer and sitting on the couch. Limes. Uh, on today's show, we're going to be discussing passing on 1980s pop culture to our children. And a little bit later, we'll be joined by two-time Canadian Screen Award winner for Best Leading Actor in a Comedy Series and the star of Kim's Convenience, Paul Sun-Hyung Lee. And actually, he won the awards for that his uh, role there as Mr. Kim. He's awesome. He's got his own young family. And, you know, so I'm curious how he, I know that his son, Miles, appears on his YouTube channel from time to time, participating in the various, you know, nerdiness that they do over there. And oftentimes it, it involves some item of pop culture that, you know, we're fans of from growing up. And so we can find out maybe how he, what he's done to raise his kids, right? Because it seems like he's doing it right, right there live on the internet. <laughs> okay. Hey, before we get started with the show proper, once again, it's time for... Thank you for your cooperation. <laughs> we have received a message... From Dwight Slemons. Hey, Dwight. Thanks for listening to the show. Dwight wrote us via the form on 1980s Now, and you can too. Dwight has given us some suggestions, he writes, for future new episodes. And oh boy, Dwight's keeping the uh, interns busy sorting through this list. It's a big list. Tons of great ideas here, and some of them that we've never considered, and others that we've either are working on, have <laughs> worked to, we've reached a dead end. Maybe that means that we couldn't get a particular celebrity, but here, hey, I haven't thought about Glenn Scarpelli in a long time, and that's, that's on uh, Dwight's list here, uh, among uh, many other of his uh, favorites from the 1980s, including Solid Gold. He writes here broadly, fashion of the 1980s, teen magazines, Grease 2. All right, I might have to take issue with Grease 2, but you know, hey, I'll give that to you. Um, hey, we had Michelle Pfeiffer in there. We love Michelle Pfeiffer, so there you go. Mm-hmm. And a number of other things, and seriously, uh, Dwight, thanks for putting this together. We are looking into uh, your suggestions here because there's a tons of great ones. And, you know, actually there's one here I see here that actually may be coming up very soon, actually. So it looks like we're maybe on the mm. same page, great minds and all that sort of thing. If you'd like to contact us, reach out to us at uh, website 1980snow.com or on Facebook or Twitters, whatever, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Anything else about that? I, I have a shout out for what could be possibly our youngest listener. Okay. Who is um, somebody I've known since she was five years old. She's <laughs> 17 now. Oh, I have permission okay. to say her name. Yes. Carrie Grace Herzog listened to at least one episode. Wow. <laughs> I think. I don't know if she's listened to any more than that, but she listened to at least one and she enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, good. I guess the real test is if she comes back. Right. You know, speaking about <laughs> raising your kids uh, in the 80s, you know, knowledgeable about the 1980s and, and, and I guess passing on our love for that decade to our children be curious mm-hmm. if she's, you know, if her family raised her right or not. Because if she comes back, yes. If not, all right, you know, <laughs> it might be time for, for family counseling or something. I'll do more. I'll do some research yes. and find out. I also have good news okay. for you guys. Mm-hmm. We actually are funny. Oh. I received feedback from another listener. Okay. <laughs> who, yeah. who commented, it's so funny. Well, that's good because it takes hours to write this show. Right, yes. <laughs> now I forgot my next line. Oh, sorry. Oh, I know what it is. Let's get caught up on 1980s news. You forgot that one? Come on, cat. I'm acting. <laughs> hey, today on 1980s news, uh, via deadline, we have learned that one of our favorite, okay, one of my favorite, I think the last time I brought this up, Ray was like, what? One of my <laughs> favorite classic 1980s TV shows, Silverhawks, <laughs> is being uh, reanimated, as Deadline puts it, by the Nacelle Company, I'm going to say. Hey, we all remember the 1986 animated TV series, don't we? No, we don't. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I still don't remember still this show. No? All right, well, hey. Sorry. Nah. <laughs> it was a, a companion series by Rankin and Bass to, uh, uh, to their hit Thundercats show. 
Um, now we know Thundercats mm-hmm. is getting some, maybe be getting somewhat of a revival. And Ray and I talked about how now this is a while ago. Now you could do it. Back then you couldn't. You couldn't do it prior <laughs> to that because I think Ray said they'd look like the. Uh, What's his name mm. on the Beauty and the Beast TV show? Um, <laughs> Who, Ron Perlman? Ron Perlman, yes. That's what the costumes <laughs> would look like, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> but uh, an exclusive report in Deadline says that the Nacelle Company, and I've ne- I don't, I'm not familiar with that name, but I'm familiar with their work because they produce the Netflix n- nostalgia series, The Movies That Made Us, and The Toys That Made Us. And I love those, those documentary shows. If you haven't seen them, you should check them out. Tons of great stuff about the 1980s. Uh, and really fascinating stories about these different, uh, you know, areas that you would not otherwise know. So according to Deadline, they are moving forward to bring us some, uh, I guess, reboot, revival, something in connection with uh, the Silver Hawks. Uh, if you're not familiar, I'll remind you, it's the one where they're like cyborg people that are, they start off on Earth and like uh, some scientists like combines humans with, you know, <laughs> what a cyborg is and then <laughs> sends them off into space to fight bad guys. And the bad guys are led by this guy named Monstar, who's like a mummy. It's a weird mix in that in the show. It's like a combination of uh, Egyptian uh, culture. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got a mummy and some other things that seem Egyptian inspired. But then you have robots that are like cowboys and sing songs. It's yeah, right. I I watched the little intro oh, and okay, one yeah. of them's playing a guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so basically, what they did was yep. is the people who were working on Thundercats mm-hmm. all sat down and said, "We need another show." Right. <laughs> Um, what bad ideas did you have before we did Thundercats? Yes. Maybe we can just mix them all together. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and I swear, I can't remember the name, but they did, right? I think you're right. Because there was a third show that came out by these same people. And I swear it was something like Tiger Sharks. I was just oh, going to wow. say, how did they miss the obvious yeah. lightning dog? <laughs> We've got to get that made. Uh, oh yeah, gosh. that's yes, right. I think you're right. But but that said, I loved Thundercats and I loved Silverhawks. It wasn't deep on lore, you know, but uh, it was high on action and spectacle in the way that many anime, <laughs> you know, shows are. Because it's very influenced by that Japanese style. Yes, it appeared to be. Yeah, I suppose the good news is since they don't, they didn't really go too deep into things as the way they would today. That leaves a lot of room for this new company, Nacelle to create whatever they want as far as backstories or tweak things, you know, and maybe get it more, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, have a more a cohesive aesthetic and, oh, sh-. you know what? I realize I'm getting the Thundercats and Silver Silverhawks mixed up. <laughs> I, I said Monstar, but then I described Mumra. <laughs> <laughs> all right, no, Monstar, all blur. now I'm remembering. He's like a monster. Yeah. He's got like a cyborg thing on his head. I don't remember. Oh, and he had he had bad guys that also used music. That's what it was. So the Silverhawks actually. I feel like I need to watch this now to to find out for sure what's going on with it. I do too. <laughs> yeah, you may have never even watched it. I think maybe I didn't. Yeah. Oh boy. No, what I meant to say was, yeah, no, the villains are based on music. That's right. Holy cow! I can't believe I just did that. A lot of it's music, and I did like that. In fact, I did like the, oh. the character you referred to as like a cowboy. Uh, plays his guitar, and it's uh, like weaponized yes. guitar. And there's a there's a villain. <laughs> Uh, who she has a keyboard that she uses in a similar way. Anyway, whatever. Do they do a battle? Um, yeah, yeah, they, well, yeah. They, they're they're natural yeah, enemies. <laughs> do yeah. the bad guys have silly names like uh, the cowboys' names, like Hop Along? Well, I really realized I really should have looked up something about Silverhawks. <laughs> now, <laughs> holy cow! Oh, bluegrass. Oh, geez. See, there it is. <laughs> there was, they was dug uh, deep on that one. Oh, right. And there was these. I think they were twins. Yeah, they were twins. A steel heart and steel will. There was a, a mime sort of robot. And they've had this like in a, a Battle of Planets, they mm-hmm. had it too. Uh, a younger seeming character that can't speak. Uh, named This one was named Copper Kid. He speaks like in uh, whistles in different oh. you know, tones. Um, so again, mm-hmm. it's sort of musical. I got to watch this now. I really got to watch this. <laughs> Maybe not. Whatever. Who cares? I hate Silverhawks. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you, Ray? You swing in one way and then the other. Wait. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm consistent. Yes. If I'm nothing, I'm I am consistent. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, in other 80s news, this school season, the original Trapper Keeper is back. Yay. It's going to feature seven new outrageous designs that blend the rad coolness of the original Trapper Keeper from the 1980s with today's retro fashion trends. Because when we think about today's trends, we think, you know, fashion, right? And fashion. I can't, I couldn't <laughs> even tell you what a trend today is as far as fashion. What would that be? Retro 80s. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. It's just a throwback. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, the original Trapper Keeper, did, did you guys have one? We know that Kat's brother had one. 
because she still has mm-hmm. it. I know we talked about I do, this briefly. Yeah, we did. I don't. I never had my own. Okay, I, I didn't have one either. So me neither. Those were for the rich kids. Yeah. Mm. I mean, a notebook would be fine. Yeah. Why do you need that? Yeah. Right? We had the cow notebooks, like the, you know, the print, the black and white. Composition notebook. Yes. Yes. That's the official name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not a cow. It just sort of yeah. reminded me no. of a cow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now I learned that uh, the original Trapper Keeper was launched in 1978. Um, it was developed at the Mead Corporation by a gentleman named E. Bryant Crutchfield. And it wasn't by accident that he came up with this, this design. It was, uh, you know, he did a lot of research to ultimately land on having a binder that allowed you to swap in and out keepers, they called them, you know. Those. The original one was tested in Wichita, Kansas in, in August of 1978, and then they were finally rolled out nationally in 1981. Now, when he rolled them out, he did something that, you know, I don't think had been done, uh, certainly wasn't common at the time, was that he put a a note card uh, or a feedback card into each one that asked for feedback about the trapper keeper to ask some questions and promised any kid who ter- who sent it in that they would get a free binder sent to them. Wow. Approximately 1500 cards were returned under the question, why did you purchase the trapper keeper rather than another type of binder? Respondent said things like, I heard it was good. My girlfriend had one. So when kids in my class throw it, the papers won't fly all over. <laughs> <laughs> Crutchfield's favorite comment came from a 14-year-old named Fred, who wrote that he had bought the Trapper Keeper rather than another binder to, quote, keep all my like papers and notes. (laughs) In 19, uh, so there was a couple of sort of changes that made it uh, the one that we're familiar with. It started off, it first had the metal snap. Now, does your your brothers have a metal snap or a Velcro enclosure, Kat? It has the Velcro enclosure. And inside, it's actually plastic, though. It's not um, metal rings, but it's a, a plastic hmm. arrangement with a sliding part to make it open Interesting. and close. Interesting. Okay. We're going to have to figure yeah, out when that was made. Because uh, when yeah. they were first started, they had the metal snap, but then they switched to Velcro mm-hmm. in their third year. Uh, and mm-hmm. then in 1988, it's when they first introduced the design designer series where they had that sort of, you know, funky and sometimes psychedelic designs on the binders that ran until the mid 1990s. Now, as we mentioned, they're coming out again this, you know, just in time for the school season this year, but the vintage ones have become hot selling commodities on places like eBay online. Per the outline.com, they wrote this article in in 2018 talking about how uh, sought after they are saying that some sell for as much as 19,500% over the original price. Wow. (laughs) So that means they're worth 80 bucks. Oh my God. Again, (laughs) what? He's like... Rain Man for an 80s reference for you. For the math part, not the, not anything else, the math part. His driving is terrible. His driving is terrible. Oh. But Ray, Ray you're right. Because so they, they uh, talk to some folks who sell them on Ebays and the most expensive models seem to sell for around a hundred bucks, although some claim they've sold them for more. So Kat, do you have yours there? Can we see what it's what it looks like and maybe we could figure out how much it's worth? It's designer series. Oh, designer series. Okay. And it's got like the uh, Purina Chow symbol on it. Is this a cross-branding thing with Purina? Yeah. Isn't that that symbol? <laughs> right, those five boxes, Ray, that look like a- Could be some kind of Illuminati thing. <laughs> found it here. Let's see. Yeah. This says the Vintage Mead Trapper Keeper Designer Series 3 ring binder lightning bolt. Someone sold it online for 60 bucks. Wow. So there nice. you go, Kat. Should I cash in? No, Ray and I are going to start to bid on it. We'll start the bidding at $5. <laughs> I'll give you five bucks for it. Oh. Sold. Oh. <laughs> Oh, no way. Thanks. All right, Kat, I'll get you my address later. Okay, hey, in other 80s news, once again, it's time to play... In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. Speaking of determining the prices of things, first up on the auction block, a sealed rare version of the iconic Nintendo game, The Legend of Zelda. This copy of the unopened game came from an early limited production run of the NES game dating back to just a few months in 1987, according to the auction house Heritage Auctions. WADA Games, a professional grading company for video games, which I think Ray and I, we talked about months ago that they may be shady. Yeah, they mm. own the games oh. that they price out. You're right. This They may have been the seller. Mm. Um, in any case, WADA Games, I don't know if they were the seller or not, but this does say that they rated it at nine out of 10 as far as the you know, quality of it. Heritage described it as the apotheosis of rarity, cultural significance, and its collection centerpieces. I, I, I'm going to have to get the dictionary out for some, some of those words. Hmm. 
but probably that it's really nice and good to have. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you think the winning bid was? Uh, I'm going to wager, I guess, at $152,006. Okay. Kat, do you have a guess? Well, do not say $1 more. <laughs> All right. All right. I won't say that. I'll say $1 less. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I'm going to say 125000 I'm sorry, but you're both wrong. The game sold for $870,000. Man. Making it the most expensive video game ever sold, according to Heritage Auctions. Um, that topped the $660,000 sale in, in April of this year for a sealed copy of Super Mario Brothers. That's the one that was right. found in the desk drawer that Ray said was was a was going to turn out that is a forgery. I'm, I'm still waiting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so you're not denying that you said that, right? then? Okay, good. Oh, absolutely not. I still say it's a forgery. Okay, good. Because Just in case you were going to try to change the story. I think next year we Uh-oh. find out yeah. this thing is a fake. Quiet! You took it too far. Quiet! You took it too far. The whole company is going to be going to jail. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, hey. I gotta jot that down now too. I gotta keep track of so yes. many things. Oh gosh. I think this is, is the game he's playing. He knows eventually my since I don't own a trapper keeper, my organization system is not that fantastic. That's right. right. You do need this. I, I should I mail this to you. That? Uh, okay, next up for auction is Indiana Jones's Fedora. This mm-hmm. particular Fedora was made specifically for the second installment of the series, 1984's Temple of Doom. It was created by Herbert Johnson Hat Company who did the hats for the Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. It was, it was a slight update from the original, though. The, the uh, costume designer and assistant costume designer worked closely with Herbert Johnson on an update that incorporated a more tapered crown than the prior film. Mm-hmm. Fancy. Oh, yeah. The Iconic Hat was estimated to nab anywhere between one hundred and fifty dollars and $250,000, according to the Los Angeles Auction House prop store that auctioned it off. It has been sold. What do you think the winning bid was? Um... I'm going to say 500000 oh, Okay. What do you think, Greg? Uh, this is one of the most iconic items that mm-hmm. Hollywood has ever auctioned off. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say $8 million. Wow. That is so far off. No, the correct <laughs> bid is, uh, the winning bid was $300,000. Uh, Again, it's just, bust. you know, just a little too much for us. Just a little too much. Mm-hmm. They practically broke in and stole it. <laughs> You know how many Trapper Keepers cats going to have to sell for us to be able to buy it? <laughs> now, in a couple of weeks, we'll be speaking with Sean Mallon from the Pop Store about some other iconic items that have been sold and get a little bit more into the culture of uh, this type of memorabilia. You know, who exactly is interested in having this? What makes a good prop to sell? You know, I did see some things mm-hmm. on there and I was like trying to filter out for the cost. Like, do you have anything for $5? Turns out, no, they don't. <laughs> I thought of a way no. to make money. You did? We, we sneak onto the set yeah. of Indy 5 okay. and we no, just no. pick up rocks. Rocks, yes. Just gather up pebbles mm-hmm. and we start selling them as props. <laughs> <laughs> this is pebbles. the road. Uh. This is the road that they ran down mm. in some specific scene and we just sell yes. the rocks. Okay. And then we have to start a company that grades them. Oh, that's an even better idea. You know how many rocks you get at Home Depot for like 10 bucks? I, I didn't want to say it, you know. <laughs> a whole bag of rocks. 20 pounds, I think. Uh, I think all we got to do is get them dirty. No, they're pretty dirty when you buy them from Home Depot. I've had to wash, house them off before when I've gotten them. <laughs> Why are you cleaning the rocks? Because <laughs> I'm putting them outside. Because <laughs> it's Will. I want them to look nice outside. Uh, yeah, it does, okay. Oh, it does seem kind of silly now, doesn't it? Okay, hey, that was 1980s news. Hey, if you like the show and look, don't judge us by this one. If we just got back from vacation, we're warming up. Wait till next week. Woo! It's going to be great. But please, do us a favor and subscribe. And if you really love us or not, you know what? If you just like us slightly more than that, also go to podcastawards.com and nominate us to win a TV and film award or and a pe- I must said or. And you can do both, a People's Choice Award there on that podcastawards.com site. Okay, today on the show, like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about how we raised our kids right on 1980s pop culture. And a little bit later, we'll be speaking with our guest, Mr. Paul Sun Hyung Lee, who's got a YouTube channel, a bitter Asian dude, where he nerds it up. And routinely, his son, Miles, his youngest son, uh, often participates in the fun boxings, as he calls them, which, you know, <laughs> include a lot of nerdy stuff and many times things that are connected to our youths. So he's doing it right. We'll talk to him about that later. Let's talk about it now. 
we do a lot of things for our children. So maybe we should talk about a few or we should just say what's the most recent. I'm going to go with the oldest. Okay. I want to go with the earliest. The first thing you did to indoctrinate your child into 1980s pop culture. Well, I wouldn't say I did it exactly, mm-hmm. but when my daughter was a baby, she didn't crawl. She would just kind of sit there. Yeah. <laughs> and I could walk away for five minutes and find her in the same spot. That's what know? babies do, Kat. <laughs> They're defining a baby. What do you mean? No, I mean some babies oh, want to go mobile? places, right? Oh, okay. They start crawling. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. So she was like nine months old and she was not interested in I traveling yeah. anywhere. Mm-hmm. She just sat there. So she's up in uh in our bedroom and I went down the hall to put away some sheets or towels or something. Mm-hmm. And I was gone for about a minute. And then I hear this. <laughs> She's arming herself. She found a lightsaber that my husband Scott had propped yeah. against a dresser, which was not near her. Yeah. So oh, that wow. was her first travel. She scooched over <laughs> and she got hold of this lightsaber and pushed the button on it. Oh my goodness. So had, would she have seen Scott use it? And so she knew what it was capable of? No, I don't, oh. I don't remember it doing, you know, nobody walked around with it. It was just yeah. leaning against this dresser. Mark so. Hamill, her godfather or something? <laughs> no. Mm. I'm guessing every time you left the house, Star Wars was on the TV. <laughs> huh. Well, speaking of Star Wars, my yeah. husband Scott also had an agenda. She, he was so desperate yeah. to expose our children to Star Wars. Yeah. Guess how old they were hmm. when he, he they watched all of them. Like, well, we watched them together. Uh, I'll guess she was two years old. Hey, good guess. My son was two. I was oh. going to guess as soon as you got home from the hospital. <laughs> I'm sure he, he would have done that if I had let him. And I can't even believe I let him when they were two and four. Hmm. But yeah. Also, when my daughter was quite young, she was a toddler. We went to a dollar store mm-hmm. and I saw these. Look how cute they are. They're tiny. It? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. April, right? April Mm O'Neil. But I saw these and I was like, I have to have those because I loved these. But I would say my children's exposure to 80s pop culture through me was pretty organic. It just sort of came up. Mm. But through my husband, it was like very intentional. (laughs) He's like, they have to see Indiana Jones now. Mm -hmm. This might be a male female thing. Oh, absolutely. I I think you're right. (laughs) There's something too that it was a box he had to check off. Yeah. Oh, well, hmm. Maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, actually I think about it. My wife and I did make a list lists together of movies from the eighties oh. that we wanted our kids okay. to see. Okay. So. All right. What about you, Ray? What are you? It's, it's pretty yeah. obvious. I mean, mm-hmm. as soon as they could talk, well, actually before they could talk, it was yeah. steady diet of movies mm-hmm. to make sure they knew every classic, mm-hmm. taking them to daycare while we listened to his eighties music. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I would always use the excuse of, well, the radio's dirty. So <laughs> what? What? They, they only play. They the, all the songs on the radio are yeah. disgusting. Uh, oh, <laughs> they're about milkshakes and the yard oh, and all that oh, stuff. So okay, <laughs> forget it. We're gonna listen to some wholesome music from the from the eighties. That's well, that's a good way of doing it. I thought you meant the tuning knob was like it was dirty, so like you try to use it. I uh, my car it. absolutely. Oh no, my my car's filthy. Okay, that too. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and then uh, what's that? Oh, and I would just buy the toys, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. yeah, and say, hey, check this out. Yeah. Check out my new tur- Ninja Turtle. Yeah. I didn't even pretend like it was for them. I was just like, hey, here's my Ninja Turtle. <laughs> Get your hands off of that. <laughs> you want to play with it? Yeah. And they'll be like, I want a Ninja Turtle. All right, off to the store. We got we to gotta get oh. some Ninja Turtles. Got to get some more. <laughs> you know, you remind me, Kat, with your story of when we spoke to Tom Higginson of the of uh, the Plain White Tees a, f- a few weeks ago, or a couple months ago now. If you recall, mm-hmm. he, he showed his child the Goonies when he came home from the hospital. He was still yes. a baby. <laughs> yeah. He's holding his baby. Oh, it's going to be hard yeah. to beat that, I think. And now his, 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 son, wow. his son and Tom and his son make a pilgrimage to uh, a spot in Oregon where they shot the film there every year, he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't beat that. Mm-hmm. But um, much like you guys, and yeah, like I said, we did make a list, my wife and I, and it's, we still have a list on our refrigerator that we update every now and then as we see films of just sort of mm-hmm. generally the films we wanted the kids to see and mm-hmm. just check them off as they go. Now, my do- two daughters are different ages, you know, eight, they're about eight years, eight or nine years apart. So- we, we went to work on my, my oldest, you know, early on 
And then it was just, <laughs> we were in this kind of weird space now where my oldest daughter can see, you know, R-rated films and my youngest, mm-hmm. you know, is making her way to PG-13. Yep. So we have to choose the more family, you know, oriented ones now, but uh, I can't mm-hmm. wait till, you know, they're both old enough that we can just plow through whatever's left and not without any regard for the rating <laughs> system. Just like how we grew up in the 80s, because, you know, we've talked about this before. The ratings didn't matter. You, mm-hmm. Parents are watching something. You could watch it too or not. Yeah. Technically, I still use, if it's an 80s movie, yeah. I use the rating from the mm-hmm. 80s, not the updated mm-hmm. one. Like, like uh, Gremlins. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think that's uh, PG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think... Um, that's why they changed it, right? <laughs> Gremlins and Temple of uh, Doom. And Temple of Doom. Yeah, because yeah. Red Dawn's the first PG-13. Right. Goonies is PG. Oh, my goodness. And that's got yeah. adults trying to murder children. <laughs> <laughs> They've got the dead guy with the bullet hole in his head, and they lock Chunk yeah. in the freezer with him. Now, like, we had to right. work. We had to sort of coach my youngest daughter through that scene. <laughs> and, uh, she was fine, but... I'm surprised she made it through him pretending to hang himself in the beginning. Oh yeah. Right, right, right. Yes. That was there. She did. My daughter is funny. Enough, so, Cause we have to tell her ahead of time, look, it's going to be fine. This is rated G or whatever. PG. Mm-hmm. It's some joking, you know, they shoot guns or whatever. Is just, is as wild as it gets. Something like that in the movie happens. And I forget to tell her, she just turns oh. to me on the couch. Like you <laughs> mother, what have you done? But yeah, we did get her through that. Um, but yeah, but we, so we watched all the 80s movies, mm-hmm. 80s video games. We've got the, you know, Atari and the Nintendo systems. We've sort of made sure they've seen some of those games. They got bored real quick when they learned they couldn't save anything. That would didn't last very long. Oh, yeah. But, uh, and then much like Ray, pretty much even to this day, wherever we are, we're listening to 80s music. They just know <laughs> that's how it is. Yeah. Yep. I've given up on my teenager making her listen to it. Yeah. Because... Like I'm driving and she just takes over the music now. Yeah, mm-hmm. she plays a lot of weird stuff now. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I hear you. Right, you're right. You're right. I do get my my older daughter DJs too when I'm driving. But you know, we sort of oh. agree to swap songs. Like she'll you know do some for her. We'll do some for me. And then we have those occasional nexus of music where we talked about many episodes at the beginning of the year. Ninja Sex Party did a does did a series of covers of 1980s songs, and so she loves mm-hmm. them, and I love 80s, and. Mm-hmm. That's how I fell mm-hmm. in love with that group. Mm-hmm. So, so hey, yeah, cool. what's the message here? Raise your kids right. The, not only the <laughs> 80s way, the 1980s now way. You also got to remember to threaten them with a belt every once in a while. Oh. It's it's um, just a threat, people. Come on. Threat. <laughs> the threat should be enough. Oh, no. You got you to gotta commit to the threat so you look believable. Right. It's called <laughs> acting. That was enough to shut us up. Um, oh, little Ray. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I wish I could give little Ray a hug. But little Will is crying in the corner because his dad just unbuckled his pants. <laughs> did your father with the belt, did he fold it and then push it together and then- the snapping pull, sound? Yeah. You know, I don't know. But did your dad do that? Yes. Oh boy. He, yeah. Oh. Now he was, he was mostly joking. Yes. He liked to oh, just okay. goof around with that. Oh. But he, yeah. Mm-hmm. While this, <laughs> just before we got out of this segment of us- it took a dark turn. We were almost out. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, we have a guest on that we admire and respect and a big fan of. Oh boy. All right. What are you going to do? All right. Hey, speaking of that, right? In a moment, we'll be right back with our guest today, actor Paul Sun Hyung Lee. Our guest today just finished a five-season run on the critically acclaimed sitcom Kim's Convenience. Portraying the patriarch of the titular family, our guest earned Best Performance by an Actor nods from the Canadian Screen Awards in two consecutive years. A self-described geek, our guest enjoys going to conventions, playing video games, and cosplaying as his favorite pop culture characters. His love of Star Wars and talent for acting came together when he landed a dream role on season two of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian. Each week, you can watch our guest unbox collectibles, review 4K movies, and otherwise nerd out on his YouTube channel, Bitter Asian Dude Inc. For more information, visit our guest's website at bitterasiandude.com. Please welcome to the show... Paul Sun Hyung Lee. Hello. Hey. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I am so grateful to speak with you. Not only am I a big fan of yours because of your acting, but I, I love when we come across someone who grew up in the around the same age, 70s and 80s, 
and just to learn more about how, how, whether or not the pop culture that we collectively grew up with may have influenced your life in some way, maybe even, you know, uh, affected the path that you took and the work that you wound up getting into. Yeah, absolutely. So taking a step back, but not too far back, of course, you grew up in uh, Canada. I grew up here in the U.S. here. United States, we don't know much about anything outside of this country. I, I think there's probably two camps where folks either think they have nothing of our culture or they only have our culture because we're the U.S., <laughs> you know. But uh, growing up a kid in, in Canada, what are the first type of pop culture that spoke to you? Pretty much growing up, I mean, I, I keep saying this, but television was my gateway. Yeah. Uh, my parents were both immigrant parents. They were both working and I was a latchkey kid. Mm. And so, you know, for those of you who are younger, uh, you might not know what that means, but basically <laughs> back in my day, parents could leave their kids alone. They didn't have anybody, they didn't have to have anybody to watch them. And I was no. <laughs> uh, very young with my sister. My sister's about a year and a half older than me. And the two of us were left to our own devices. And we had a key to our home uh, tied around our necks with a piece of yarn, basically. And that, that was, that's why we were called latchkey kids because yeah. we let ourselves into our own homes uh, with these keys that were hung around our necks. And it was totally cool to do that. Um, so with them being gone all the time and us not having any adult supervision, my babysitter, my best friend sure. was a television. And so I consumed voraciously <laughs> programs that I probably shouldn't have been watching at that age. <laughs> Let's be honest. I yeah. saw <laughs> quite a few scary movies um, well ahead of my time, which, you know, had an effect, let's right. just say. <laughs> sure. um, but my big thing was, I mean, my best friends, uh, like like all kids, I adored cartoons. But for me, my jam was Bugs Bunny. Mm. It was a Bugs Bunny uh, Roadrunner Tweety Show Hour right. uh, that was on TV. Um, watch that religiously. The Flintstones, Hanna-Barbera, all that stuff in the mornings. Um, you know, Grape Ape, Huckleberry oh, yeah. Hound. Right. I used to watch Gilligan's Island, uh, some of the older programming too. Like I really started finding myself drawn to the sci-fi. So Star Trek, Lost in Space. I watched all the old Westerns too, Have Gun Will Travel, The Rifleman, anything with kind of a story attached to it that I could just sort of lose myself in, I consumed. Uh, and there had to be action in it. Uh, I think that's why I love cartoons as well, because they were so violent. Um, <laughs> Tom and Jerry being a, a prime example. I love Tom and Jerry just because of the, I mean, it's, it's kind of horrifying now when you think about <laughs> what Jerry did to Tom, yes. but Tom kind of deserved it because he kept trying to eat Jerry. Yes. Um, but it was all those, that, that sort of form of, of, of storytelling introduced me to slapstick, mm. introduced to me to like Comedia del Arte, introduced me to classical music, introduced to me to all these different things that I carry to with me to this day. And I think people of our generation, you, you can't say anybody from generation X didn't get affected hmm. and don't carry a part of that of ch their childhood uh, today into their adulthood. Right. Um, and, and so it was like a smorgas, a cultural smorgasbord <laughs> of everything. And because a lot of our programming, all the cool programming, I must say came from the States because I grew up, uh, in Calgary, Alberta, and we were close to Spokane, Washington. And so we would get a lot of the, a lot of the channels from the U S and those were the cooler channels. Right. <laughs> I mean, that they're, they're carrying Star Trek space, 1999, mm. um, all those things that I loved, I would watch on American TV. And, and of course, you know, the tradition of Saturday afternoon movies, they would be the, the popcorn movies right. that are on endless repeat that you watch again and again, and you still kind of do. I mean, there's that rule of thumb where, you know, if Godfather's on TV, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you have to stop and watch, right? So it, it's kind of like that. You know, it's, it's interesting to me how you, the way you framed this idea of latchkey kid, you know, you remind me how I have two, two children and one's 10 and one's 19. But I'm even having this debate about my daughter who's 10. I don't know, should we leave her at home? I, this is terrifying. But my wife and I think, you know, we were like six or seven cooking our own lunch on a stove, yeah. on a gas stove, you know, when we were kids. It was <laughs> Something. I remember taking the city bus to school when yeah. I was in grade two. Oh, wow. And now it's yeah. like, you know, uh, with my youngest, he's, we, we finally, he's, he's been on his own for a bit now, like walking to school on his own. I mean, yeah. not on his own in his own apartment or anything, just <laughs> sort of walking to school. But I remember there was that big sort of like, I don't know, he's in grade four. Is he old enough to walk the five minutes yeah. <laughs> around the block to the school by yeah. himself? Yeah. So yeah, it, it, we've become so afraid of everything now. And I want, I do wonder, and I thought about looking into this. 
are things really worse as far as crime? Or is it just like every generation, you hearken back to your generation and say, well, it was better then. So it's got to be worse now. So lock the kids up, you know? Yeah. I, I don't I, honestly know. Yeah, I think we, we suffer from having too much information at our fingertips and we're aware, That's true. you know, they say ignorance is bliss. And sometimes if you're not, if you're not aware of something, you don't have to worry about yeah. it. <laughs> right. And we, we live in a faster paced society as well, hmm. where I think people don't pay as much attention. I know, for example, with my son walking to school, he's pretty smart. He's got his head on a swivel and I teach him. Right. So you can be in the right, like you can have the right of way when you're crossing the street. But if that person in the car isn't paying attention, you're still dead. Right. Yep. You're right, mm -hmm. but you're dead. So you have to be, you have to be aware because sometimes people aren't paying attention. Right. And I think that's kind of the, the fear because things are going so fast and because everybody's got so much in their plate and they're trying to multitask and they just get distracted. They don't mean to to like not pay attention when they're behind the wheel of a car. They don't mean to speed right. as much as they do through a, through a school zone. It's just, they're so self-absorbed in all the things that they have to do. And they're working on three different things at once in their head while somebody's screaming in the back and they've got to get, you know, their, their kid dropped off so they can get to work. Right. It, it, there's just too much going on right now. And I think that's the big thing is the pace has picked up tremendously. Hmm. And so there's that fear of, I don't want my kid to be a st statistic. Because that's that's what it kind of boils down to right. at the end. So it, it's just, I, I think that's that's what it is as well. You know, you mentioned that uh, how we have so much information now, so that leads to a greater awareness of the dangers of the world, and maybe things could have been as dangerous or you know relatively maybe in our different neighborhoods. But you also, when you were talking about television and and, and you know sort of the drive-in theater shows that would come on in the middle of the afternoon, you remind me, I think because also it seems like we had fewer choices as far as content. We were able to we were able to get more immersed in the uh, pop culture of our parents and even mm -hmm. you know prior generations, and I think there was some sort of continuity there. Where now uh, there's so much choice now, my children are not going to come across even a program from the '70s or '80s, you know, sort of randomly and land on it, you know, and stay on it. Whereas you know you were watching old westerns, but there is a joy in actively thinking. All right, what can I introduce my daughter to here today in the 1980s? What sort of, uh, you know, pop culture from your youth have you, I guess, been most excited about sharing with your, your kids? Wow. Uh, it's right now. It's, it's pretty cool be, when, when they sort of discover something on their own and they bring it to me. It's like, have you ever heard of this movie? <laughs> and it's, it, it, that's a lot of fun to kind of go uh, to, to hear that. I mean, for me, I'm excited to share all my geeky stuff with them, but it's about timing too, right? If you yeah. introduce them it to them a little bit too early or a little bit too late. There's like <laughs> that window of opportunity where it'll capture their attention and stuff. And, and I also don't want to definitely not force my, my sort of like, I love this show and you're going to love this show too. Uh, you know, that sort of sensibility on, on my boys. Yeah. That being said, I mean, I remember when, when I was, <laughs> I'm a stay at home dad. Yeah. And I went from a really steady acting gig where I was, you know, talking every day to suddenly being at home with a one-year-old who didn't speak. <laughs> and I, you know, you went from like, I went from a hundred to zero. I was like, oh, okay. And I remember just sort of the silence and, mm. and then me filling it just with sort of chatting, chattering on with him. Mm. It was a very lonely experience for me being, being a stay-at-home dad. And so I, I started going a bit nuts. Mm. Uh, you know, in that sense where it was just like, if I had to watch Dora the Explorer one more time, <laughs> I was going to lose my mind. And yep. so mm -hmm. I remember... My eldest was five and I was like, daddy really needs to watch one of daddy's old movies that he loved and you're going to watch it with me, but I'm going to pause it and I'm going to tell you when scary stuff is about to happen mm -hmm. and you don't have to look and I'll tell you about how they did this special because none of it's yep, real. Right. And we sat and we watched Predator. <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight being what it is probably wasn't the best choice. But I was having a particularly low moment yes. <laughs> and I had fun. I was like, Oh, thank God. It's an adult. It's a movie that I loved when I was in grade eight. Right. Um, and he seemed genuinely into it. And I was mm. like, I was constantly checking in saying, you're cool. You're good. It's like, yep, I'm good. I said, okay. And I pause it and say, at this point, you know, they, they find all these guys and they're upside down <laughs> and they don't have any skin on them because all this skin's been pulled off, but it's all fake. And I, I told, I told him the process of rubber and he was like, okay. And he said, so here it comes. And I was doing this commentary with him and he seemed fine. He was oh. like, oh, okay. That's really cool. I was like, yeah. And I even turned, I've even muted it because I find mm -hmm. if you mute the scary music and the jump scare violins, right. 
They're cool. And he was awesome. Took it like a champion. He was like, loved the movie. Absolutely loved it. And then at like 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> the terrors <laughs> jumped in and the high pitch screaming began. <laughs> and my wife was like, what's going on? And he's like, the predator's coming to get me. And yeah, there was a price to be paid on that one. Um, but so I've been <laughs> very, very careful now about what I want to share. But I mean, the, I, I've sort of gone through that phase now because both of my boys are past that age where they know what dad loves. And dad loves Star Wars. Dad loves sci-fi. Dad loves all these things. But it's cool because my youngest is turning into a bit of a horror aficionado. And so because of Ready Player One, for example, they've got that scene in oh, the, right. the Overlook Hotel. Right. He's landed hard on, he's on the Stanley Kubrick kick. And so he's like, The Shining. I want to see The Shining. Mm. I want, and I'm like, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He said, you're not going to be freaked out? He said, no, no, I saw The Kill Count oh. on YouTube. <laughs> now, <laughs> <Right>. The <laughs> Kill Count is basically all carbs. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, it's somebody has gone through on YouTube and taken every single kill, yep. every single person who's been killed in a movie, and they'll put it in a video. So you get rid of all the story, <laughs> all the plot development, all the character, all that stuff. Yeah. You just get to see the gore, which is cheating. Yep. But a lot of kids now, it's like they're Cole's notes for movies. Mm. They'll look at it and go, oh, I've seen it. It's like, how have you seen this movie? Right. Oh, I watched The Kill Count. It's like, but that's not really watching the movie. So we watched it and he and his brother, who's 17, both freaked out. They oh. were both so scared. Wow. I said, but you said you watched it. He said, yeah, but none of this music was in, yeah. <laughs> in this. None of the, like, they didn't see right. Jack Nicholson's descent into madness. <laughs> and, for, like, it, and that's the tremendous thing. It was such a great learning lesson too, because I said, well, now you know. Just because you see clips of a movie doesn't mean you've seen the whole movie. And there should be so much more to the storytelling than just those pieces. Right. And that was great. That was really, really great. But uh, I, I'm, I'm loving just sort of sitting back and having them find stuff that I secretly loved. And, you know, when they bring it up, it's like, oh, mm. are you ready? Right. Let's begin. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just start pulling out the yeah. movies or the collectibles. And the trivia, and I love that they'll do the deep dives on their own and they'll do the research mm. on these movies and teach me about things that I, I didn't even realize. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. My youngest daughter, one of the earliest 1980s movies I showed her was, was uh, Batman from 89 because she was getting into yeah. this superhero thing, you know, and uh, we, she loved, we watched the uh, Linda Carter uh, Wonder Woman. We would watch mm -hmm. that. She'd watch uh, Batman 66. We, we would watch that. So I thought, hey, okay, here's the time. It's not, it's not really a violent movie. It's, you know, fairly over the top. She was fine the whole movie until Batman is fighting the Joker in the, you know, bell tower yeah. and he gets punched in the mouth and he has some blood in his mouth. That was it. And like you said, it comes out mostly at night. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting how they <laughs> process it and then they sort of store it. And then they were weakest, I guess, in the evening as far as anxieties go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that comes out. Yeah. So growing up, I've seen you talk about uh, this before, that growing up, there weren't folks, so many folks who looked like you in these various media. W was it something that you were always aware of? Was it something as you get older, something you start to question? Uh, are there, you know, moments where you're proud of, of the characters that are portrayed and others where you feel, you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, you know, I, I was never really aware of it no. until I was older. I mean, it just didn't, I mean, in my day-to-day -day life, I, I didn't, it's not like I ever, you know, I'd be playing something and go, oh my God, I'm Asian. <laughs> oh. And then go, you know, it, it's just, you are who you are. And I was yes, raised yes. in Canada. So, I, you know, I'm not looking at myself. I'm just playing. I'm like, I'm a Canadian kid playing with my Star Wars action figures. Right. And I love mm -hmm. Star Wars and I love Star Trek and I love all this stuff. And it's not till somebody points it out to I you hmm. that you kind of go, huh? Oh, yeah, that's right. I am of Asian descent. I look Asian. Mm -hmm. You don't think about how you look. Yeah. You're just you. And so watching TV, I, it, it was just like, I was, it's like you're watching North American TV, U.S., Canadian-based stuff, white faces, and you kind of go, well, yeah, that's normal. Mm. And because that was a dominant culture. And you kind of go, okay. And you're watching that and you go, oh, yes, I understand that. And my family's not like this, but normal, good families are, mm. right? I mean, and that's the thing. Yeah. You're taught that your family is an, you're an outside, your family is weird. Your family is different. Your family stories don't matter. And so you, I never saw my family on the TV screen and it made sense because my family was weird. 
right? Mm. That's, that's the subliminal messages. Yep. And it wasn't until I trained as an actor and then wanted to get work as an actor that it suddenly became very obvious mm. and very apparent that, huh, I am treated differently because of the way I look. It doesn't matter how I sound. It doesn't matter mm. about my acting ability. Right. None of that mattered. What mattered was how I looked, especially for television. It's a visual medium. And the excuse was this exclusion. And it was, it was exclusionary was that you couldn't have a character that looked, that was non-white basically and have audiences relate to them. Mm. That was the, always the, it's like, Oh, you know, we, we, we thought about casting ethnic mm. uh, on this role, but uh, you know, they're unrelatable. <laughs> audiences can't relate to this kid. The audience can't relate to a main a protagonist that doesn't look like them. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, that was always, it was always a very convenient excuse. And it was frustrating and, and hence bitter, bitter Asian dude is, mm. was kind of, is that's my, my uh, Twitter handle. And that's how it started because when I was a younger actor, it was very bitter because all these avenues of employment were cut off to me. I wasn't even given an opportunity. I mean, it's one thing if you're allowed to audition and try out for something and they go ahead and go, no, we're going to pick somebody else, but not to even have that opportunity is frustrating. It's, it's infuriating. Really? Because it's like, so you're basically saying, even though I've been raised in North America, in Canada specifically, where I sound the way I sound, I, I don't speak Korean. I've haven't been to Korea much. Uh, Canada's my home. I'm as North American as it gets. I love hockey. I drink beer. I pay my taxes. I eat pancakes with maple syrup and I like <laughs> butter, blah, blah, blah. But because of how I look, yeah. you're not going to let me you don't think mm. I'm Canadian enough or North American enough to play this role. It's an injustice. And mm. I'd like, you know, it's, it's great that we are making huge strides in the opposite direction for that, where we are suddenly becoming more aware of the inequities of that and how we, we're opening it up more. And it's becoming more of a diverse and more of an inclusive uh, field now, at least in front of the cameras. And behind the cameras, there's another whole other battle that's beginning. Um, but it's, it's, it's happening. And I never thought, to be honest, in my lifetime, anything like that would happen. Hopefully it's like we're, we're like the tip of the spear and like we're, we're, we'll kick the door open instead of just holding it open a little bit and, and let everybody through. Because in the end, when stories are told with that kind of a diversity, that kind of a richness, these stories become again, relevant again, instead of same old, same old. And it opens up a, a richness of possibilities in terms of casting, in terms of narrate narratives, in terms of types of stories being told and everybody wins. Audiences win for that too, because suddenly it's like fresh and exciting work right. and new discoveries of fantastic actors, which has been happening. If you look at all the actors of color out there who are now getting an opportunity to shine, yep. it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, and, Sorry, I'm just no. Hey. <laughs> going on and on. I'll get off my soapbox now. Yeah, I just talked to Sir Mix a lot a few days ago, and he was paraphrasing James Brown, and I think he said, "I I, I don't want you to give me something. I just want you to open the door, and I'll get come in and get it myself." That's exactly it. Unfortunately, That's exactly it. You know, with everything that we love about the 1980s, and we tend to look, examine, and celebrate 1980s pop culture, there's tons to be embarrassed about. And you know. <laughs> Among the many cringeworthy scenes we have in various 1980s films, unfortunately, there's not, uh, we don't have a great track record for Asian characters or the portrayal of Asian characters in, in those films. How do we, and look, I don't expect you to speak for all Asians. We can just get off this topic altogether. All you tell me we've had enough of this. I don't expect you to speak for all Asians. I'm not asking you to. I almost even bringing this up. I feel like I'm racist just for pointing out that you're Asian now. But I am. <laughs> I'm one of those people yeah, from your youth who pointed it out. But how do we reconcile? I mean, can can we still enjoy Gung Ho and the Karate Kid and uh, Temple of Doom and understand all Asian people aren't, uh, you know, wise sages or, yeah. you know, evil? Uh, yeah, no, I, you know, that, hey, look, these are movies that I grew up watching and yeah. I love. I love 16 Candles, Yep. Hmm. you know, growing up. And the Long Duck Dong character was, I mean, let's admit it, he didn't make me feel cool. Yeah. Right. It was just like, but at the same time, I was like, well, that's not me though. Mm. Right. And mm. if somebody's dumb enough to think <laughs> that all Asians are like that, yeah. then they're the stupid one. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, it is a product of its time. There, there's stuff that just doesn't hold up 
after the passage over the over the mm. course of time, right? There's stuff that's timeless that you kind of go, wow, wow, that really that's still relevant today. Right. And I can't believe this is still going on. And this movie was made like 40 years ago. And there's stuff that like you kind of go, that was cringy. Like oh. that's that's like, you know, you look at the the homophobia in friends. Doesn't yeah. translate really well, right? Doesn't hold up. Yeah. You're looking at that going, oh, okay. Um, and so like, you know, watching Long Duck Dong get kind of crapped all over and made fun of and like the poor treatment from the grandparent. The only thing I can say is at the end, he gets his, he gets his revenge. Mm. He takes the old grandfather's car and he drives it into a lake. He hooks up with, with this beautiful woman that he, he loves, right. Who just totally just not emasculates him, but in in fact, turned like sleeps with him. Right. right? So, uh, you know, I, I guess it's safe to say that he loses his virginity and becomes a man. Right. Right. And so you look at all this and you kind of go, okay, is he singled out as being more of an oddball than any of the other oddballs in those movies? I would argue no. You know, the uh, Michael Anthony Hall character, the nerd characters, the John Cusack character, where they're wearing the, the bras on their heads and they're like being nerds and stuff. There is no race element to that. It's mm. a nerd element. And long duck dong, you know, with the that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, it doesn't hold up now. But at the end, I don't think it was a malicious attempt mm. to say that all Asian people were like that. Right. It was a character and that's what it is. And Gary Watanabe, who plays him, I mean, you're, you're at this, I mean, there's so many people, well, I never would have taken that part. That's BS and he threw our, you know, the, the movement under the bus. You know what? That's an unfair thing to do it, mm. for people as well to say, well, I wouldn't have. Yep. You wouldn't have known it was going to become something like that. For Getty, it was. And I, having never met the guy. Yep. But being a young actor, when you're like, this is a big part in a John Hughes film. And your character at the end comes out on top. Yeah, absolutely. I would have totally gone for it too myself. I would have gone, okay. Yeah. And I'll make money off of it. Okay, sure. <laughs> and you don't go into it thinking you're going to be cut, cutting off a cause at its knees right now. Uh, it, it, it's, it's about getting work. And if he turns it down, somebody else would have taken it. And what if that somebody else was even worse in right. terms of portraying that character and mm-hmm. went even like, so it, it's all these things where that's the past we learn from it. You look at that. Is it as bad as, was it breakfast oh, at Tiffany's? Yeah, breakfast at Tiffany's? Is yeah. it as bad as Mickey Rooney? Oh boy. Hell yeah. no. Right. Like that's straight up caricature racism right there. Mr. Uniori yeah. or whatever with the buck teeth with the, like that is offensive. Mm. And it's like, oh, take a joke, take a joke. Like, you know, he'd be smirched. I mean, that is somebody else from the outside hmm. doing that and physically altering their appearance right. to mock, not to get into character. That was pure mockery. Uh, and so that makes me sick. Yeah. And that's the difference, right? That, that'll be the difference in it. And that does not hold up at all. Hmm. You look at Joel Gray in The Adventures of Remo Williams. Right. Like that's full on yellow face. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. He's got the prosthetics. This is Academy Award winner, Joel Gray. Yeah. And I remember I drove him once. Uh, I was uh, way back when I was just on the cusp of becoming a professional actor. I was working for a company in, in, in Toronto called Live Ent, Live Entertainment. And they did all the big musicals like Showboat. And they brought him in because they were doing workshops for this musical, Sunset Boulevard. Mm. And I was, his, I was his driver, his lackey for the day. And I was just, just out of university and a young actor. And I was supposed to drive him around and pick him up and, and stuff. And man, tip of my tongue every time as <laughs> you go. So, you know, I'm Korean, right? <laughs> to be fair as well, it didn't strike me as particularly horrifying that a white guy was putting on makeup because it, there, there'd been a history of that from Charlie Chan onwards, right? Genghis yeah. Khan, you, you have John Wayne doing that. Yellow face wasn't a new thing. And to be fair as well, the character that he played was a respectful sort of master and, you know, done humorfully. And I guess he had done his research. My parents loved that movie. Mm. They were so pleased to see any bit of Korean culture reflected Mm. up, you know, on the silver screen and done so in a positive way. You know, it wasn't, it was kind of a sideways, like, Ooh, this is very mysterious and, you know, exotic Mm. and Oriental, Mm. but they were very proud that there was the Korean culture up there and stuff. Mm. And it's not till later on that you become aware of all the, you know, the, the baggage that comes with it, the, po- the politics of like, oh, 
pretending to be a completely other race. I mean, yellow face is a form of blackface. Right. Blackface is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it is, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, you know, retrospective looking back on these films and coming up. And at the time, blissfully unaware of any of that stuff, mm-hmm. really, really unaware. But I think subconsciously, you're building up this data bank where it's saying, don't be who you are. If you want to fit in, be like the white people. Right. Right. That means right. you deny anything that makes you unique or different. So I didn't want to be Korean growing up. Right. Didn't want to speak mm. the language. Didn't want to eat the food. No, I, did, I didn't, didn't want anything to do with that. And I regret that now deeply yeah. because I don't speak the language. Right. And I missed out on, on a lot of great food, which is now popular. <laughs> Which is yeah. Yeah. so you oh, come yeah. full circle. It's like, what? Yeah, what is this, Paul? I'm like, you I don't know. It, what Paul. It, it's like, great. <laughs> didn't you have it? It's like, good. You, my, my mom cooked it all the time, and I refused to eat it. Yeah, but it's delicious. Mm. So it, it's things like that. Right. We had a guest on once, Dan Pasternak, who's yeah. a very ge- nice gentleman who did a documentary about uh, the rise and fall of stand-up comic uh, comedy in the 1980s, and he said to us off when we were done recording the show, we were talking about the, you know, sort of some of the issues that are raised by 1980s pop culture. And he said, Hey, if you want to be the stewards of that decade, you can't shy away from any of it. You got to take the good, bad, talk about all of it. So I appreciate you talking about that with us, but let's talk about something nerdy now. So we were talking earlier about this vast collection. It looks like now you've amassed behind your, you, you're in the camera here <laughs> of your various uh, items. You've started collecting. You made the comment and this is fascinating to me that you started you know, collecting those things or maybe recapturing things from your youth that at the time you couldn't have. Yeah. Um, is there a strategy for doing that? Do you start just thinking back to Christmases when you didn't get a certain <laughs> gift or you two, you Google commercials from when, from the 1980s or something? Right. Yeah. I think that's where it kind of starts. You know, it, it's the age of nostalgia where you see online or somebody is, has posted, Oh my God, I finally found it. Hmm. I got my 1985 Ghostbusters uh, proton pack with the bubble popper. And you're like, oh my God, I wanted that. And so you do that search and you, yeah. you know, and, and corporations, they look at it and go, oh God, people still want this. Let's do a re-release. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how it started with me. It was just a slippery slope. It was, uh, I mean, I'd always, always kind of collected things, comic books, action figures mm. and whatnot. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, I mean, let's face it, it wasn't until I got steady TV work that I had yeah. the disposable income right. <laughs> to sort of go after some of the bigger ticket things that I wanted. But I, I do recall when I was a kid, I remember wanting certain, like seeing a die cast model of a, of a, a you know, a colonial viper mm. and saying, oh, I really, I want that. I want that. And one of my parents and immigrant parents were like, well, can it feed you? Can it? <laughs> you know, can you turn it into something that'll feed you? Is it a medical textbook? Then no. And so, you know, you're like, oh, and you really, and you carry that stuff with you. And then, so when you do see it as an adult, you go through that mental checklist of, can I afford it? Uh, Is this taking food out of my kids' mouths? Am I not being able to pay bills with it? Like, is this something that I can get with my disposable income? If the answer is yet, I'll snap it up because there's that little itch from, Right. 35 years ago that I couldn't scratch. And so I get it. And so like you end up with something like this, right? Oh, or you get nice, that. You, got it. you finally get that colonial viper oh, I love that. that you always wanted. Right. Mm. And you know, you don't play with it anymore. Well, not much, Yeah. but you look at it <laughs> and you can, sound. you know, it's the tactile feeling of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's there. And so you're like, wow, this is, this is, it, it's a, and it's, it's, it's that nostalgia kick. It's li- mm. reliving your childhood, except this time you get to pick what you want and you can afford it because it's on your own dime. But then something weird happens and it becomes kind of, you know, people get hobbies and other people's hobbies turn into obsessions. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like I said before, it's a, it's a slippery slope. And then you're a hoarder at some point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, and you run out of room. Mm-hmm. Like this is the stuff behind me. Wow. It's not even a third of what I have. Oh. I've got on the other side of the wall, I've got my other proton packs and my cosplay and my star Wars armor and my T2 arm, uh, mm. you know, T800 arm and the infinity gauntlets, both, you know, from Thanos and from the Avengers. And in the back room there, it looks like a comic book store mm. overstock because I have other figures, action figures, a Novos helmet, uh, prop replicas, Blu-ray movies, box sets, uh, full size, like, action, like a, like a millennium Falcon 
stuff, like all these play toys wow. that are still in box too. Hmm. Because if I open it all up, I have nowhere to put it. Hmm. <laughs> so it sits right. there right now. And it, yes. I'm like smog on his mountain of gold. <laughs> going, mm. But the hard fast rule is I need to eventually, I have to enjoy it. And if I'm not enjoying mm. it and it's just sitting there, I got to move it up. Mm. And the rule of thumb is uh, I don't want to profiteer from it. What I want to do is I want to find them good homes. So somebody mm. is going to get them who loves it. And will. and I would, I would take that over like making insane money off of, cause I didn't buy that to appreciate and value. Right. And to, to profit off of it, I bought it because I loved it and I wanted it. And I want somebody else to feel that. Mm. I still have all, that's the only thing I have from my childhood is every Star Wars toy I've ever had, oh, I still have. You are so lucky. My parents got rid of mine. Oh, no. Gave them away. Yeah, no. gave them away. Oh, gosh. I think I would have stopped speaking to my parents. That's it. We're done. <laughs> I'm moving out, even though I'm a child or whatever. <laughs> I, I did, when Phantom Menace was about to come out, I thought, okay. Mm. I still have these old figures, which aren't really worth much because they were enjoyed and loved. And I was very meticulous as a child, took very good care of them. Uh, the only time I ran into trouble was I kept all the guns in a Ziploc bag or, oh yeah, I don't know that we had Ziploc when we were kids. We had those fold over sa you know, sandwich bags. Yeah, sandwich bags. So I had it yeah. in that. And somewhere between walking from like my cousin's house in the city <laughs> to my house, I lost the bag. Oh, oh my gosh. I was heartbroken. So I wrote, a, I wrote a letter to Kenner. She had a, I actually had a handwriting stick in the mail. They sent me another bag of guns. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Wow. I, still, I, th I think I have that bag. Oh gosh, if I lost that one. But <laughs> when I was, great. when Phantom Menace was coming out, I thought, all right, here's a chance to now, you know, start a new collection. And I yeah. had all these things in containers for years. And finally I was like, yeah. well, what am I doing? So at yeah. some point when my kids were old enough to start getting into Star Wars, I just opened them up and said, anything you want to play with, just take it out. Go for That's it. That's awesome. So we had awesome. fun. Whatever was left boxed, I gave to a friend of mine who just really loved Star Wars and was starting to put stuff on shelves in his house. So I appreciate that. So look, as a as a child of the eighties, I often feel like a, I don't know, a guardian or a steward of the, you know, the pop culture of that decade. Now we're fortunate enough to have, you know, to represent a big market of the consumers of pop culture today because Hey, we've got a number of films and TV shows and things coming out that uh, cater just directly to, you know, our love of nostalgia for that era. So I want to know what you're, th as if, because you, look, you've cosplayed as a Ghostbuster. You've built at least yeah. two proton packs. Have you ever gotten that bubble one from the, from 85? The bubble proton no. pack? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> you still covet the 1985. All right. Um, what are your thoughts about the upcoming Ghostbusters uh, sequel? I'm so excited for it. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, it just because it's it's the lineage, mm. right? It's Jason Reitman. Right. He was, yeah. you know, Ivan Reitman's son. He was in Ghostbusters too. Right. Uh, he he. It's it's a continuation of that storyline. Yeah. Which I love. You know, it's 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 Egon's old. It's his family. Yeah. It's that sort of storyline. It's it's all connected. Um. Yeah. And I'm excited about it just because it, it's again the tone of the trailer. What I've seen so far, and I've I've tried to stay away from spoilers, but I mean, who's fooling who? I, I yeah. consume it as greedily as I, I did yeah. all the, the original <laughs> movies, but um, it, it just feels right. The tone feels right yeah. uh, to it. And uh, I'm, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm excited to see what they come up with. And for another generation of, of fans mm -hmm. to jump whole hog in, into this thing, I think is great. Um, you know, when you, when you mentioned being stewards of the eighties, I, I like that word so much better than gatekeeper. Mm. Because I think a lot of fandom has become stuff like that, where it's it's gate gatekeeping, where it's like, well, you couldn't like I grew uh -huh. up watching the originals, right? You couldn't possibly know as much <laughs> as me because of your gender or because of right. what you have or blah blah, blah or the le your level of cosplay, and I find that disappointing um, in fandom that it's come mm. down to that because it's very school ground, you know. It's not being a fan; it's not a competition, mm. right? The best form of fandom is share. It's a shared experience. Like being a solo fan is kind of sad. Being a fan with a group of like-minded individuals where you're all celebrating and lifting each other up. Right. That's when it's fun. When you mm. go to the movie theaters and everybody rises to their feet and they're all cheering for the same thing. That's the shared experience that we all crave going to cons and meeting like-minded individuals and learning new things and making new friends and trading uh, different things like action figures or comic mm -hmm. books or seeing what everybody else has been doing or, or, or learning new information or sharing that information is 
is part of that experience. And to think that you're better than other fans because you know more or because you have more, I, I find is a bit disappointing uh, and goes against what true fandom is. So I, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, there's a lot of people who might not be, but mm. you know, it, it's like that level of vitriol that was directed towards the reboot, the 2016 reboot. Right, right. I, I honestly, it's just like that movie, if you loved it, if you hated it, it has no bearing whatsoever on the original Ghostbusters. Right. Uh, and that's what people are. Oh, you ruined my childhood. Yeah. It's like, really? Your childhood is that fragile? Yeah. You that accept, movie. accepted you somehow. And <laughs> exactly. So removed memories. I, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it, it's, it's on its own. I like the 2016 Ghostbusters. It was different. And I didn't want the original Ghostbusters. If I did, I just would have watched the original yeah, Ghostbusters. Right. And you so. know, when you talk about, you know, look, I'm not trying to bring us back to the representation. <laughs> I swear, I swear to you, Paul, these things are just on my mind. And as a father of two girls, my daughters yeah. were raised watching Ghostbusters one and two. They love them. When 2016 came out and my then, I don't know, she was probably eight years old at the time saw that seeing a woman as a Ghostbusters was enthralling, amazing. You know, it, it was just another part of sort of what we try to, you know, teach her is that, gender is not gender is not shouldn't be an obstacle to anything and so Sorry. yeah that was a good movie too boy i can't you know my, my, i have a co-host that often says i try to bring the show down all the time i don't i just <laughs> there's real things it's, it's not no but these are relevant things too yeah. right like it's good to talk about all the stuff that makes us feel great as well but there 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 are also other topics that are just as important too and and i, I think those are important and a lot of times it's not like we want to drive people away from it but i think these are things, these are shared experiences that I think a lot of people need to hear and have those discussions too, especially around, you know, toxic, uh, toxicity right. in fandom mm -hmm. and whatnot. And let's, let's change that direction and really re-examine what being a fan is about. And especially after everybody's been cooped up in their own homes and having to physically distance right. and not mm -hmm. gather. The last thing you want to do is when you get into a big group of people, it's just kind of, well, I'm a better fan than you. And like start it off that way. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. I can't wait for the conventions to be back. I, I told my wife, as soon as we can get out and be among people, I'm going to hug strangers, just yeah, random yeah. folks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. It was absolutely a pleasure to speak with someone who, you know, is a success today. And we love your work on Kim's Convenience, of course. But to know that you're an 80s kid too, extra special. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thank you so much. And, you know, sort of how we were touching on before we talked to Paul, and Paul brought up a, a number of different things that I wasn't even thinking about. You know, being a latchkey kid, having to come home and cook for yourself. The only cooking skills you need yeah. is to get a fork, a hot dog, yeah. and turn the stove on. That's really all you need to survive. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yes. All right. Hey, raise your kids right. I'm sure everybody listening to this show has. But if you haven't, there's no time like the present. Mm -hmm. Even if your kids are adults. <laughs> hey, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. See ya. Later. <laughs>